Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing The Lion King. doing. I hope this episode finds you well. Patty, we have so much to discuss in regards to this week's subject, but we do have a few points to make in this opening segment. I would like to offer a quick correction right up top. As pointed out by listener Jenna, Woman of the Year, which was last week's subject, was not our first Candor and Ebb musical in terms of podcast coverage. As I stated during that episode, we have already covered Kiss of the Spider-Woman, Dadoy. Oh, how I forget myself sometimes. So thank you very much, Jenna, for pointing that out. So we have covered two Candor and Ebb musicals at this point. Hopefully I do not make that kind of mistake again. Ooh, that episode will forever make me look the fool. It will. It makes me so mad. Second, I would like to throw this out there to our listeners. I'm looking for a bit of feedback in regards to a specific type of song that I am very much intrigued by. I call this type of song the friendship rallying song, and I'm wondering if anyone can think of additional examples beyond this list that I have put together. So these songs, again, I call them friendship rallying songs because they they kind of do, uh, they, they kind of serve both purposes. They serve to reinforce a friendship between characters, a union, a sense of camaraderie, a sense of teamwork, and there is this rallying cry amongst the friends within the song. They they sort of reestablish and declare once more how they are determined and they will meet their goals. And the examples that I have here include Friendship, of course, from the show Anything Goes, We Got It, which was specifically written for The Wiz Live, Together from the show Wonderland, You Got Me from On the Town, and And somebody's got your back from the adaptation of Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin. So if you can think of additional friendship rally songs, it's hard. Those are difficult because I think there are a lot of songs that emphasize friendship. But I also, I just, I really like this even more narrowly defined type of song where there's there's a get up and go quality. We can do it. You know, we can do it. I wouldn't count that because they're not, that's the song from the producers, of course, but they have not yet really established their friendship at that point in the show, so I don't think that would count. So I am interested in hearing uh, from you, and at the end of the episode, you will, uh, if, you, if you're listening for the first time, at the end of the episode, you will find out how you can communicate with me, the musical man, but not now. Patty, we gotta talk about, right, the Lion King. Now, before we get the show facts, show me the show facts, I do want to begin by revisiting City University Television Presents the American Theater Wing Seminars, Working in the Theater, Producing. 
We all remember that little program, audio from which was dropped into our episode about Juan Delian, a carnival mask. Oh, that title. Let me just reemphasize what a wonderful title for a program that is very easy to remember and not at all Byzantine. There's no minotaur hiding within this title waiting to chop your fucking head off with a goddamn battle axe. City University Television presents the American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater Producing. What a title! So I'm going to be playing another clip from that program in just a second. When we drop into this cut, I have made a producer of The Lion King. This is a panel of representatives from the team that put together and produced The Lion King for Broadway. So when we drop into this cut, I have made a producer of The Lion King, Peter Schneider, is talking about how you can't adapt a major film for the stage without a desire to do something truly daring with the material, and he expands on that. Then the clip will switch over to director Julie Taymor, who talks about collaborating with Disney and her initial concept for the production. For clarification, when Taymor uses the term double event in the audio you're about to hear, she is talking about how characters in The Lion King are represented both by visible actors and animal headpieces incorporated into their costuming or used uh, via mask work. So without further ado, let's get that clip. It's a little bit longer than the clips we're used to, but I think this is going to help uh, clarify a lot, give us a lot of context in regards to entering this show this week. So take it away. The artists there believe every time they go to make a movie, they'll make a movie better than Walt Disney ever could do it. Whether they do or not is really immaterial. They have the belief as an artist that they can find something special or interesting that has never been done before. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. But without the belief or the commitment to do something original and unique, why bother starting down the path? Because then you've failed, in my opinion, already. So with The Lion King, we knew we had something special. The movie was so wonderful. How do you do anything better than the movie? And it's all about film. It's these big camera moves and herds of wildebeest and smiling lions and frightened animals. And it, it seemed so, sort of so impossible. So therefore, the trick was to go find people or somebody that could do the translation of this in a special way. And one of the people that uh, we had put on the list, and Tom had put her on the list and had known her work, was Julie. We went down that path because, we, you know, she came in and... So you watched this movie. Right. And you thought they're not... Julie. No, no, yeah. no. Tom, I think, it had, you hadn't seen anything live, but you'd seen mm. some video of a, of a piece that I had done many years ago called Liberty's Taken, which was a canvas that had about five or 600 characters and it had inanimate objects as well as human beings and animals. The, my background in theater, I like epic theater. I like theater that normally you isn't kitchen sink. I mean, and and I've done a lot of Shakespeare, so the panorama is something that I'm not. In fact, I find to be quite a wonderful, challenging thing for the theater because it means you must use the poetry and artistry of the theater to get to the essence. So it's not about translating the literal landscape onto stage, but finding a theatrical way to get to the essence, which is what you have to do when you're moving from film to theater. First of all, I work from the story. So it's not how am I going to visualize it first? What is the story? Do we think the story is complete? Does the story work for the theater? When we began, we didn't. there was not even the, the absolute that this was a legitimate Broadway musical. It could have been done in Radio City Music Hall. It could have been a kind of Cirque du Soleil. 
LA. It could have been done in a planetarium. We knew that we would like it to be a Broadway musical, but what does that mean then? And you had a short movie which had time for expanding. I started, I actually went off in one direction that, that Tom just adored for a moment. And, uh, you know, I, I, had to, I was given tremendous freedom, which, you know, it's a collaborative process, but on the other hand, if you don't give the, the, the main artist, which I think in this case is the director, to pull it together, the two of them, rather than saying, these are your limitations, you have to stay here, here, go for it. What do you think's missing? What is even missing in the story? Now, I may have gone off further than they knew, but they didn't know it until I'd done it. Exactly. That's a key thing. And therefore, my problem was I felt what, what they were worried about is how do you make this this animal kingdom human on the stage because you need to have that kind of you need to have that connection with the human being and I was worried myself in the beginning of how to do a whole show that was animals without going into a lot of detail I had created a second act where the animals morphed into half humans half animals literally and I you know I developed this thing which I thought was very exciting on retrospect I think it was good that we didn't do that I think it would have been a four hour musical and unnecessary to tell you the truth but what it did do was it, it then forced me to come up with the visual concept which was the double event of the human and the when I couldn't do it in the storytelling and I was then told that the limitations are the same group of characters the jungle and the savanna that, this, that we couldn't go to Las Vegas or wherever I took us <laughs> not quite but we couldn't go to this other place then within those limitations I tried to find other ways of doing it also people are always wondering well was it a committee I mean is it by committee is this a, such a collaborative that you don't get to pulley, uh, pull through and it wasn't that style what I really why I think this is a wonderfully um, astute and terrifically creative production to Team is that they allowed me to pick my team. This was very supportive. It was not by committee. It wasn't them saying, we're going to have you work with this person, that person. It wasn't that kind of thing, which I think is very dangerous because I think that you have to let a vision come through and then you support the vision. That doesn't mean there aren't checkpoints along the way, and especially when I'm not sure it's working. And there were places where I'm going, I don't know, what do you think? And then I really respond to the creativity of the producerial input. That's very important to me. There's a lot to examine here, especially when you consider all of the Disney Broadway adaptations we have at this point. Beauty and the Beast was the first, followed by The Lion King, and since then we have seen Tarzan, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Mary Poppins, and Frozen. Hercules is currently in development. None of these shows are nearly as conceptual or theatrically adventurous as Julie Taymor's version of The Lion King. Disney really did give her a great deal of artistic license when bringing the film to the stage, and these other adaptations to varying degrees of dead-eyed extremity reek of workmen piloting a moving van from Hollywood to Times Square. Sometimes the shows are lavish, sometimes they're tacky, looking at you, Tarzan, but across the board, they are very literal translations of material adults and children would have already memorized 
popularized long before taking their seats. Sure, you get a few original songs, a slightly more fleshed-out script, and more diverse casting, at least recently, but you always get the sense that change can only be indulged so much. We can't go crazy. We can't have Elsa turn into a shower of talking snowflakes as realized by Japanese-style puppetry. Aladdin isn't going to be mutated into a solemn Brechtian black box affair. The attitude seems to be now that audiences are expecting a very expensive theme park-style show, so let's give it to them. Let's not mess with success. If you'll recall, this City University television program is the one in which Tamor dismisses the importance of being authentic to a particular culture as it's more important to uphold the authenticity of a director's vision. So if Tamor desires to pick and discard from any number of world cultures in an attempt to realize her version of Africa, so be it, nothing else matters, it sounded questionable when I covered Juan Darien and it sounds even more ridiculous now with a bit more time. Tamor is trying to have her cake and eat it too. She insists what you see in The Lion King isn't a carbon copy of Africa, as straight authenticity would be boring to her, but she also insists it's not a hodgepodge of whatever elements she approved of, even though this is exactly the process she embraced. Call it a carefully measured synergy, call it a holistic collaboration, call it whatever you like, but there's no way you'd get away with this rhetoric today. Another point I took from this clip is how the phenomenal success of The Lion King gave Tamor blank check status when mounting Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. When it came to developing that show, it's clear no one was keeping Tamor on track, and she went so far in the direction of the bizarre, Spider-Man became unrecognizable as an adaptation. I'm all for artists having room to try stuff out and challenge our expectations, but Tamor's Spider-Man starts to sound like a parody of high theater the more you look into it. As always, there are fine lines we have to walk in theater, and being too literal or contrarian can get you in trouble when spearheading these monumental, wildly expensive productions, these big adaptations. Bonus thought, I would like to see a version of The Lion King in which Simba and Scar morph into animal-human hybrid monstrosities and duke it out on the streets of Las Vegas. It sounds just about as insane as Tamor's initial staging for Spider-Man, which involved an entire sequence where spider deities try on shoes so they can magically become human. This is what I've heard, at least. When I was a kid, I developed a Lion King 2 pitch involving a robotic version of Scar, so really, who am I to judge when it comes to artistic license? That's our little cold open for the show facts. Now let's get those crunchy granola sweet... Ooh, they're so sweet. Let's get those little crunchy granola facts right now, shall we? The Lion King is an adaptation of the 1994 film and its screenplay, which was written by Irene Mechie, Jonathan Roberts, and Linda Wolverton. Should we have made this clear earlier? I mean, we all know that, right? Oh, I hope so. Okay, we have that made clear now, at least. The Lion King, the musical, was the 1998 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on November 13th, 1997 at the New Amsterdam Theater, where it ran through June 2006 before transferring to the Minskoff Theater. As of June 2nd, 2019, the show has logged 8,977 performances. It's one of only 17 shows on our docket that are currently 
currently running and is the number three longest running production in Broadway history between Cats at number four and the Chicago Revival at number two. Per Wikipedia, the show had grossed a global sum of $8.1 billion as of 2017, which is bonkers. The London production, which opened in 1999 and is also still going strong, performed before senior members of the British royal family. Uh, Is senior member a nice way of saying the oldest white men and women we have? Asking for me, an old queen. The book was written by Roger Allers and Irene Mechie. The music was written by Elton John. Additional music by Lebo M, Mark Mancina, Jay Rifkin, Julie Taymor, and Hans Zimmer. And the lyrics were primarily written by Tim Rice. Additional lyrics by Lebo M, Mark Mancina, Jay Rifkin, Julie Taymor, and Hans Zimmer. So, for the record, the only composer of color on this writing team was Lebo M. Remember this point. Remember his name. It's an important name to recall. This is going to come up a lot. If you're sensing a bit of skepticism coming your way in regards to that fact, you're right. But it's good to be skeptical of and question what you love. I love Broadway and musicals in general, but the industry and how it works should be questioned on a regular basis, and we're definitely going to be doing that this week. Lebo M. was also the only creator, by the way, who was a member of the original Broadway cast, which is pretty amazing and very rare. I can't think of a single additional example of that. Can you? Again, let me know. Interact with me on Twitter. Email me. But you have to wait until the end of the episode to get all those details. Let's continue with the show. The director, of course, was Julie Taymor. The musical director was Joseph Church. The choreographer was Garth Fagan. The set design was by Richard Hudson. The lighting design by Donald Holder. The costume design by Julie Taymor and Michael Curry. And the original Broadway cast included Gina Breedlove, Kevin Cahoon, Max Casella, Tracy Nicole Chapman, Heather Headley, who would go on to play the title role in Disney's Aida, Joff Hoyle, Scott Irby Renair, Tassidi Leloka, Stanley Wayne Mathis, Jason Rays, Tom Allen Robbins, Kahuna Shuford, John Vickery, and Samuel E. Wright. And of course, as always, I do apologize for any mispronunciations that you may have heard that burned the hairs in your ears. If I knew that anything was being mispronounced, it would drive me crazy. So as always, I apologize. Tony nods. So the show won Best Musical, of course. It also won Best Direction of a Musical for Julie Taymor. Taymor was the first woman to ever win this award, which is telling, right? For the record, 19 women have been nominated for for Best Direction of a Musical, and only three have won, the other two being Susan Stroman for The Producers, which we have discussed in the past, and Diane Paulus for The Revival of Pippin. The Lion King also won Best Choreography, Garth Fagan, Best Scenic Design, Richard Hudson, Best Costume Design, Julie Taymor and Michael Curry, and Best Lighting Design, Donald Holder. It was nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Roger Ehlers and Iron Mechie, nominated for Best Original Score, Elton John, Tim Rice, Hans Zimmer, Lebo M., Mark Mancina, Jay Rifkin, and Julie Taymor. It was nominated for Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Samuel E. Wright. Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, Tassidi Leloka. And Best Orchestrations, Robert Elhai, David Metzger, and Bruce Fowler. So in total, 11 nominations, 6 wins. Now the plot. I I have to assume that everyone coming to the table, uh, maybe this is dangerous for me to assume, maybe everyone is familiar with The Lion King, I would assume that the majority of you are. But for those who are not, I I don't really have any notes in regards to the plot of the film or the show, but I'm going to be pulling from my memory. So what? What is The Lion King about? Well, it is about Small Lion, correct? It is about Small Lion named Simba. 
Yes, he is born into royalty. Oh, his, his father Mufasa, king of the Prylands, his mother Sarabi. Oh, he is, he's the prince. He is destined to be king. Ah, but ooh, he has a wicked uncle, he does. A wicked, vaguely, not vaguely, pretty effeminate uncle named Scar. And ooh, how Scar hates his brother Mufasa. He, oh, how he covets the throne, he does. It's all very Shakespearean, yes? This is, I, I, they always talk about how this is vaguely based on Hamlet. It's about as vaguely based on Hamlet as you could get. In, in that, it's about royalty and backstabbing and killing. So, yes, okay, it's Shakespearean, fine, sure. Uh, so, Scar plots to have Mufasa killed during a wildebeest stampede, and he is successful. And he somehow manages, I've always been confused by this point, uh, I'll get into this later, he convinces little Simba, baby lion, small lion, he tell baby lion, this your fault, you bad, you are very bad little lion, go away forever and never return. And as Simba runs away in shame, Scar sends his little hyena assistants to kill Simba, but they are unsuccessful. And Simba escapes into the jungle. He uh, he meets Timon and Pumbaa. Uh, Timon is a little meerkat and Pumbaa is a warthog. And they teach him all about this little philosophy of theirs. It's known as Hakuna Matata, which essentially means fuck it. Hakuna Matata means fuck it. Don't worry about it. It's already happened. Who gives a shit? Just stay in the jungle, eat a bunch of bugs, get nice and fat, and fart your days away. Fuck it. I'm just going to eat bugs and fart all day. And that's what Simba does. But then his childhood friend, Nala, shows up in the jungle looking for him, desperate to bring him back to the Pride Lanes so that he can claim the throne that is rightfully his because Scar has run off any and all sources of food. The Pride Lanes, they're dying out. Simba, you must come back. Simba, Simba. But Simba is determined not to come back. He is too filled with shame and guilt. He cannot tell Nala all about what happened to him on the day that his father died. Oh, I'm filled with shame. I cannot wear the crown. It is too heavy upon my mane. Ra ra ra. I can't do it. But then he encounters Rafiki the baboon. Rafiki the baboon, who teaches him that, you know, the, the past can hurt, the past can bring us pain, but that doesn't mean that this pain will last forever, and it doesn't mean we can't do anything with that pain, you know, like, take the throne back that is rightfully yours. And so Simba is inspired. I think he also, not I think, I know, he has a conversation with his dead father. His father appears to him in the clouds. It's all very spiritual. And Simba decides, yes, I will go back, and I will fight Scar. And he does go back, and he does fight Scar, and he defeats Scar, and he becomes the king of the Pride Lands, and the show, and the movie, everything ends with another little lion cub being born. Ah, yes, Simba's Pride, Lion King 2, not as good. People claim that it's good. It's not, though. I know that they got a lot of, they got a lot of the voice talent back, but none of us are really clamoring to pop in the Lion King 2. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I was speaking out of turn. Maybe you're, maybe you like it more than the original. Maybe you think that's the show that should have gone to Broadway. Oh, Kovu singing on Broadway. What a what a missed opportunity. But that's essentially the plot. Let's move on, shall we? Yes. Now, when it comes to researching this subject, this week's subject, I did not wind up watching the original film, though I have seen it more than enough times to essentially know it by heart, loved it as a kid, still enjoy it to this day. I am a fan of the film, though as an adult, I recognize its limitations. It's a little creaky, especially in terms of its casting. One must be willing to criticize that which we grew up enjoying. Yes, it's a healthy part of adulthood. Uh, now, I do have uh, more than a few additional thoughts in regards to City University Television Presents the American Theater Wing Seminars working in the theater producing. When I first 
started prep for this episode, I only dipped into that program so I could pull out the audio you heard earlier, but then I realized I needed to watch the entire thing. Here are my additional thoughts beyond it being quite dry and seemingly taking place in a YMCA conference room. I know it takes place in like the American Theater Wing headquarters, but that room looks rink-a-dink. So according to the members of this panel, the development of the original film only really took off from the perspective of everyone at Disney when Hans Zimmer brought in Lebo M as a collaborator. It's the voice of Lebo you hear when the film opens on its iconic sunrise shot, that opening vocal for Circle of Life. That's Lebo. Hans Zimmer claims this was recorded in the first take, by the way. But to stress again, this panel of majority white men really need us to understand how the movie never would have come together or been a success without the involvement of Lebo, a South African. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad they're so willing to give him this much credit, but the movie was in development for years before they thought to bring an artist of color into the room. It comes off as very short-sighted. Lebo does address the elephant in the room, by the way. One of the first Lion King sessions Lebo had with Hans Zimmer, whom he had collaborated collaborated with professionally in the past, also included, as he puts it, quote, seven or eight white guys with pens and pieces of paper who were sort of looking at him. They were looking at him expectantly, you know, really, really ready to capitalize on all of his his wisdom, his, his cultural perspective, his context. And that really surprised and amused him. It's a light moment, but at least someone is pointing out Disney's wide-eyed dependency on Lebo as an authentic point of reference. Lebo doesn't talk until 36 minutes into the nearly 90-minute program, but when he does, it's beyond welcome. When Michael Eisner, in his infinite dictatorial wisdom, demanded The Lion King be their next priority for a Broadway adaptation, actually, now that I think about it, in the other documentary I watched, in the other, I watched this 40-minute documentary I'll discuss in a second, Eisner claims that it wasn't his idea, that other people came to him and he was skeptical, but according to the people on this panel, Eisner was, like, really fucking bullish about it, really gung-ho, and and essentially said to them, you're gonna do this. The Lion King will be the show that follows Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and everyone else was skeptical, and apparently everyone else panicked. They had no idea how anyone could adapt a story about animals for the stage, fearing it would look ridiculous and lack the humanity people have come to expect from the theater. This sort of flies in the face of, A, the entire history of theater, which can be about literally anything and still impact an audience, and B, Disney own history with theater up until that point, considering Beauty and the Beast features a metric ton of talking flatware and a fucking wild animal, emphasis animal, beast among its core cast of characters. These dolts exhaust me. They are so short-sighted, again, I'll just say that, and they can't imagine anything beyond the fucking end of their own noses. This is impossible. It can't be done. It flies in the face of everything theater can do. It won't just break the mold. It will break brains and will be arrested for artistic homicide. They also make a joke about the show running for 20 years, and the show is currently in its 22nd year, for the record. Truth and comedy, truth and comedy, T-I-C. There is a very odd moment where the show's advertising rep, Eric Elise Co-ops, a phrase from one of his peers that boils down to... No kid who went to see a show in a theater came to school the next day with a gun. He's very somber and very serious when he relates this. He follows this with, It's probably true that we have no way of knowing. Uh, sure. (laughs) 
I'm just going to let that sit. Finally, and I mean that, at least in regards to this source, there's a short discussion about the rising cost of ticket prices on Broadway and a reference to the first five rows costing around $150 per ticket. This left me curious to confirm just how much a Saturday night orchestra seat for The Lion King costs today. The answer, $179 on Ticketmaster, though the price is very wildly. It's sort of impossible to sort out what any given seat is going to cost cost, or why it's going to cost as much as it does. Broadway is expensive. Never really talked about that before on the podcast. Not the most open venue for those on a budget. It wasn't the case in the 90s, and it's certainly not today. Very It's exclusive. You got to be part of a certain bracket. That's why you don't see me going to New York and taking Broadway excursions. It would fucking bankrupt me. Okay, that wasn't my final thought. I apologize, Sumi. In the very final moments of the program, Tamor calls Disney out for backing what is obviously a commercial safe project with a built-in audience, that being The Lion King, when they never in a million years would have supported the smaller projects that made her the kind of auteur they respected and chose to hire in the first place. She doesn't begrudge them for it, but it's true. What I find funny is how we're characterizing The Lion King, the musical, as both a patently commercial no duh Uh, let's do this thing and make some money idea at its core, while at the same time claiming it was this crazy, out there, beyond risky idea no one could wrap their minds around. Was it really that hard to imagine this on stage before Tamar came aboard? The amount of protesting seems silly after a while. People playing animals! My fucking braid is fried like an egg! So let's talk about the documentary I watched. This is a 40-minute or so documentary called Pride of the Lion King. I'm going to keep my analysis of this short, considering the amount of time we spent on the City University television source. Uh, In this documentary, which focuses more on the movie than the musical, admittedly, uh, we are shown at one point Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in what I have to assume is a not-at-all-open Sardi's restaurant, being interviewed at a table as if they suddenly appeared there by magic and are now slightly disoriented. Michael Eisner in this doc looks like the fucking kingpin, and I mean that sincerely because he scares me. Uh, at one point, Julie Taymor says, it's not an American story or an African story. Is it not? I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Taymor. Is it not a story about Africa? Kind of takes place there. Uh, this is like when people describe gay narratives as universal narratives, stories for everyone, not just gay people. Everyone should buy tickets, not just gays, <laughs> not just black people. Okay, we hear you. You're speaking volumes. We get it. Uh, Broderick points out the caricature. They're in Sardis, and they're surrounded by all of these caricatures of actors on the walls. And he points out the caricature of Lion King Broadway cast member Tassidi Laloka that's hanging on the wall at Sardis, mentioning how she was a waitress at the restaurant before making it to Broadway, which begs the question... Why aren't we interviewing Loka alongside Broderick and Lane if they all have caricatures at Sardis? They all have caricatures there. They're equal in that respect. So my question is, hello? No, better to make a joke about how her headpiece, her Rafiki costume headpiece, might have contained french fries. Oh, comedy. Nathan Lane looks and sounds and seems exhausted, by the way. Who could blame him? He 
he's he is barely mustering up the energy to form banter with Broderick during this interview. Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted I can't I can't get over this. This is in regards to the film. Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted Timon and Pumbaa to recreate a Saturday Night Fever staying alive dance sequence in the original film, which proves just how much of a fucking moron he and people like Michael Eisner were back in the day. These idiots were lucky to have fucking fallen ass backwards into success, to have walked on the backs of so many actually creative people because their ideas were always bad. Always. Eisner, I believe, is the one who wanted Michael Jackson to perform a song during The Great Mouse Detective for literally no reason at all. He just liked the idea of getting Michael Jackson involved. Like I said, these people are fucking morons. I mean, the the epitome of white fucking privilege. Falling ass backwards. Cannot get over it. Tim Rice wanted to work with ABBA when it came to the film's music, which Katzenberg clearly thinks was a dumb idea. But like... Tend to your own affairs, you fucking twit. Physician, heal thyself. Yeah, I mean, is there really... Are the ideas really that different in terms of quality? You thought your Saturday Night Fever staying alive idea was more reasonable than scoring the film alongside ABBA? Come on. Hans Zimmer has a brief moment in this doc where he reveals how a lot of the non-English lyrics are actually quite politicized. Sentiments along the lines of, give me back my country. When Disney asked for translations of the lyrics, he apparently gave them false ones about cuddly animals. This kind of blew my mind. They cut that story off at about that point, so I'm not really sure what really wound up happening. I don't know if the lyrics in the movie itself, the finished product, are as politicized as he claims or if that wound up getting changed at a certain point, but it's a very interesting story. Tamor's design, puppet design for Timon, is horrifying. They show it during this Pride of the Lion King documentary. It's 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 something out of a nightmare. I'm just gonna say you don't you don't want to run into this version of Timon in a darkened theater. The idea of him being lit by a ghost light is fucking horrifying to me. No thanks. Tamor discusses the first performance of the show's early Minneapolis run, which saw a very diverse crowd. She points out how it was important for black audience members to see a black king, as she puts it, a black king figure, since from a race perspective, that's important to them. She's speaking for the black audience at this point. (laughs) She's basically saying, this is what's important for the black audience, and that's what I gave to them. Whereas the white audience, as she points out, doesn't really think about that at all. The importance of a black king figure in the story. We then cut away to another thought entirely, but it leaves you wondering just how much white audiences were impacted by this show. How it changed their perspective of theater and what theater could do. Did their palette expand? Did they become less insular and more curious when it comes to approaching material that doesn't necessarily reflect their own experiences back at them? Or was The Lion King simply an entertainment for them like anything else? We need a deep dive documentary on this film and the show that tackles all of these questions, these race-related questions, the ones I'm going to ask later and more, because I think it's much, it's a much more complicated, complex conversation than a soundbite that boils down to, well, everyone came together and had fun, and it was great for the black people to see black people on stage. It's more more complicated than that. I think we... Let's get some more black people to weigh in on this, I think. This documentary ends with Tamor telling an admittedly affecting story about how on the opening night of The Lion King on Broadway... 
Her father was hospitalized and died shortly thereafter, having never been able to see her daughter's, his daughter's, biggest project to date. That got to me, uh, clearly. So I'll just say that no matter what it may sound like, I'm not out for blood when it comes to Julie Taymor. I think she's an incredible artist and sculptor and puppeteer, and I don't think she should be canceled or anything like that, but I do want to discuss this show honestly and see what it has to offer us after all these years and where it might be lacking. Uh, That's the point of coming together every week, right? Right. P.S. It's a bummer how Disney has ostensibly, this is a very random thought, but it is a bummer how Disney has ostensibly given up on 2D animation. Along with everyone else in the game, uh, 2D animation is like manna to me. It's my bread and water, my essentials. I love watching 2D animation. Anyway, moving on. What a bunch of random thoughts I just gave you. All over the map. Rounding out this research portion of the show, I, of course, listened to the 1997 original Broadway cast album, and I watched the Tony Awards performance of Circle of Life. Look, it almost made me cry. All right, I can admit it. I have a lot of criticisms, but the song, great, and I watched The Lion King about a thousand times as a kid. My heart is easily squeezed. Sue me, Adelaide, sue me. There's also a really good 360 video of this number online where you can, I guess I'm not aware of this series of videos, but you can just move the camera. You can watch the entire number from different angles and different perspectives, but you can just move the camera in a 360. I sound like like such a fucking old man right now, but it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. You can move the camera around. It's fun. When it comes to deconstructing the score beyond Circle of Life, I'm going to focus entirely on the material written specifically for this stage adaptation, as I don't have much to say about the songs from the original film that survived the trip to Broadway. What I do appreciate about the stage version of a song like Hakuna Matata is how it isn't blown out into a six or seven minute spectacle. Disney stage musicals have a tendency to indulge to the point of audience exhaustion and indigestion, but in this case, they held back. So again, it's appreciated. Awkwardly inserted tangent. How is it the roles of Timon and Pumbaa have consistently been played by white guys across the wide spectrum of this IP? At least in terms of, you know, the three major versions of the show. We had Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella in 94, Max Casella and Tom Allen Robbins in 97 on Broadway, and now we're getting Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen for the 2019 live-action, quote-unquote, exhausting term, live-action remake, for some reason, even as the casts have become more diverse overall, we seemingly have saved two white guy seats at the table when it comes to this warthog and meerkat. Very strange. Black people can be funny, too. Yeah, yeah, Disney, it's, I know, it's a shock, right? It's a crazy thought to pass through your brain. But maybe consider uh, casting a couple of black comedians. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Anyway, enough of my side tangents, my For the Records, FYIs. Enough of all that. Let's talk about the opening number, Circle of Life. Be seen or to do than can ever be done. 
spotlight this version of Circle of Life chiefly for Tassidi Liloka, who plays Rafiki. She is fantastic, and while most remember this opening sequence for Tamor's staging and costuming and the puppetry, you can't deny the power Loka lends to what was already an iconic number. Rafiki is the make-it-or-break-it element of a song that will either totally orient you within the world of the show or leave you feeling adrift. So my suggestion is cast a rock-solid Rafiki. I know, crazy suggestion, right? Do the work. Tamor explicitly made Rafiki a role for a woman, having realized the Lion King isn't exactly drowning in dynamic female characters. Between this choice and the expansion of Nala's journey, which we'll get into in a moment, the production team does a very good job, I think, overall, of giving women a good amount of time to shine. They they did the work of beefing that up. One element that I do want to point out uh, from this song, the, the, the orchestration is much more, it's very fleshed out, and I, I I like the na 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 na. I like that melody a lot. I just wanted to throw that in there. And if I didn't throw that in there, I would feel um, what's the word? Remiss. Love that word. Okay, uh, moving on. Grasslands chant. Moving on. Let's go. Let's go. track reminded me a lot of the Juan Darien soundscape, especially uh, the initial moments, as I said, the initial moments on the track. Darien was inspired by South American cultures, whereas The Lion King is clearly rooted in Africa. But I think Tamor's grab bag style of directing is what makes them sound similar. It's an appropriation mashup, a stone soup, and we have to fess up to that and how rickety that seems in 2019. The cast of Broadway's The Lion King may have largely been black, but the majority of the artists crafting their material were white. Again, of the eight writers involved, only Lebowim is a writer of color. I don't think this fact cripples the show, but it does date it considerably, placing it firmly in a decade known for being largely clueless when it came to representation. I think we thought we were being a lot more liberal and progressive than we actually were. We thought, I think a lot of people were giving themselves a lot of credit, a lot of white people, patting themselves on the back and saying, well, we've got Lebowim. As if that, as if by opening one door for that one fucking pocket of time, they, they really should be given awards. And it's a little exhausting to hear them talk in the year of our Lord 2019. So the show runs to this day, right? Likely because it is intentionally set in Africa, but has nothing to say about Africa, right? The show is about animals at the end of the day, not people, and is thus protected from having to make any lasting thematic statements. A political family entertainment would seem to get a lifetime pass. Are you sure you're not in a bad mood, Jonathan? I swear I'm not. It's just the more I think about this as a piece, you know, taking it all into account, the more I'm comparing it to the likes of the Blue Man Group. Is that hard? Harsh. <laughs> 
<laughs> when a show has been on Broadway for this long and it's become such an institutionalized part of our cultural consciousness, we don't really think about it anymore. We just sort of see it in our periphery. Like, oh yeah, take a left at The Lion King. It's a landmark. It's a historical landmark. And I think we don't really take the time to peer very closely at our landmarks anymore. If you've been a little exhausted by my, uh, get my high horse soapbox talk, then maybe this isn't the show for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's something to consider. Feel free to, you should always reevaluate the podcasts that you're listening to. I do that on a regular basis myself. Please keep listening, though. I, I like you. I like you. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. I know I, I know I pointed out the exits, but you will stay. Let's talk about the morning report. Chips are going ape, giraffes remain above it all. Elephants remember, though just what I can't recall. Crocodiles are snapping up fresh offers from the banks. Showed interest in my nest egg, but I quickly said, no thanks. We haven't paid the hornbills, and the vultures have a hunch. Not everyone invited will be coming back from lunch. Uh This is the morning report. Gives you the long and the short. Every grunt. And snort, not a tail I distort on the morning report. What are you doing, son? Pouncing. Ah, let an old pro show you how it's done. Now, this song was cut from the Broadway show in 2010 when the show was reduced by nine minutes overall. Wikipedia doesn't make it clear why it was removed or why these cuts were made in general. I assumed at first it was because the morning report had been added to the film for the purposes of a new platinum DVD release, but that edition was made seven years prior to the song being cut from Broadway. If anyone has more info on this, I'm interested in solving the mystery. It's rare to see a major change like this being made so far into a show's run. I'm not really sure if, I mean, it's a nine minute cut. That's not crazy. So it's not like, (laughs) it's not like a movie being screened in theaters. They weren't trying to condense the film so that they could show it more often in a given day. Nine minutes isn't going to make that, make that worthwhile. So I I just want to know. So if you have any information, if you have an in, reach out to me, babe. P.S. I am glad Disney got over its need to add newly animated sequences to its old films pretty quickly because it reeks of George Lucas syndrome and no one has any time for it. We we don't want to watch the human again cut of Beauty and the Beast Disney. We just want the movie from our childhood, all right? Also, is The Morning Report especially good? No. As a song, no. It's too childish for my taste. It's a little bit too a little too clever by half, a little on the nose. Uh, so I was actually a bit relieved to hear it had been cut. Maybe someone realized stretching a 20-second moment from the film into an entire production number wasn't the best idea, especially when the number focuses on Zazu, a character who has exactly zero impact on the plot. Zazu is completely ineffectual and useless. Don't have him sing. That's really not justifiable to me. You know who has to have a number? Zazu. No. Chow down. Okay, chow down. It's time to chow down.
This is the song I always forget about, uh, quite simply because it goes in one ear and it leaks out the other almost immediately. There's no firm chorus or refrain, no core on which you can hang your hat beyond the slightly annoying chow down. Ugh, not great. And don't get me started on the guitars, the chow down. The inclusion of the kick-butt wailing guitars is a minor embarrassment. The whole thing feels like it should be performed by a traveling Disneyland band made up of college kids in punk rock hyena costumes. Like, they wear, I imagine them wearing bike helmets, but the helmets have ears and little spike studs. Maybe they, maybe they run around in roller skates? Look, who knows? We have all day to figure this out. Where's my cooking? Wait, there's no mountain too great Hear these words and have faith Oh Have faith of this song, which is known as He Lives in You, that's the distinction between the original version of the song and the reprise, They Live in You versus He Lives in You. Uh, The reprise of this song was included as part of The Lion King 2, Simba's Pride, where it was performed by its composer, Lebo M. That direct-to-video sequel was released in October 1998, so just over a year after the Broadway production had premiered. Facts! Show me the show facts. I would argue this is the best song created for the purposes of the show. It's beautiful and haunting, sporting an earworm of a chorus that leaves me with goosebumps. I chalk up the song's success to Lebo's involvement. I get everyone's collaborating to produce these songs, but if the Disney guys are going to say Lebo is the key to any of this working, so am I. And Samuel E. Wright's rock-steady, ever-assured performance as Mufasa. Gotta give him the credit, too, because he's, he's providing a fantastic vocal performance here. There's a maturity on display that makes numbers like Chow Down and The Madness of King Scar seem puerile. Again, I get that the show is primarily aiming for kids. We want to bring the magic of the theater to kids, but the material, I think, is almost too puerile for kids. I think it's a little bit too reductive and silly. I think kids who enjoyed the film would listen to songs like Chow Down and The Madness of King Scar, which we'll get to in in a moment here. I think they would view those songs as being boring and not compelling, not engaging. But a song like They Live in You, from my perspective at least, I think as a kid I would have really been engaged with that because it's it, that takes the audience seriously. It takes everyone seriously. There are real ideas here. It's not just meant to pad out the running time of the show. They Live in You is very thematically uh, powerful and heady, and so I think that that's the kind of thing we should have been aiming for throughout the entirety of the show. But I know we got to have comedy numbers. I just wish we had a, you know, a selection of better comedy numbers, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. 
The song Rafiki Mourns was written by Tassidi Laloka, who originated the role of Rafiki. Again, she's fantastic, and I'm grateful she was able to build this song from the ground up on her own terms. My instinct is Loka, who is South African, wasn't interested in having a largely white writing team write Swahili lyrics for her when she could get the job done and do it from a position of authenticity. This show only truly shines when the few creators of color step forward, and they should have been given even more opportunities to do so. I'll take this moment to point out how the show incorporates six African languages, those being Swahili, Zulu, Sutu, Sawana, Congolese, and Kosa. I'm revered. I am reviled. I'm idolized. I am despised. I'm keeping calm. I'm going well! I tell myself I'm fine. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I tell myself I'm fine. No, you're not. Zazu. Zazu, Zazu, Zazu. Yes, sire. Nobody loved me. There's the rub. Not even as a cub. What did my brother have that I don't have? Do you want the short list or the long? Whatever. All right, so the madness of King Scar, we're here now. This is basically terrible. An opinion I've held ever since I was a kid and sat down with the Broadway cast album for the first time. It feels endless, for one thing. I'm not against the idea of trying to musicalize an entire scene, as they are doing here, but there are way, way too many beats. Scar is upset. The hyenas are starving. Zazu is wailing. Nala is protesting. Scar is horny, etc., etc., etc. Just when you think it's wrapping up, it pushes through another wall and keeps trudging forward. The worst sin this song commits is its dilution of Scar as a threat. Jeremy Irons was great in the role because he lent the character an aristocratic effeminacy that never obscured his very real homicidal tendencies. Scar's insane, but he's not a loon. He's not daffy. He's not in duck muck. He's a goddamn killer. Reducing him to a gibbering dope doesn't improve the story at all, so I don't see the point. You want a second act number for Scar? Fine, I'm all about it, but this ain't it, Chief.
Shadowland uses a composition from Hans Zimmer's original film score as a jumping-off point. Uh, if you go to the film soundtrack, you can hear it on the track to die for around the 3 minute 20 second mark. I, I love it. I love this idea of using that as inspiration. In the film, Nala is kind of limited to chasing down Simba and giving him a stern talking to, but the stage adaptation emphasizes her allegiance with the other lionesses in her pride. It's difficult for her to leave when their situation is so dire, but the lionesses pray for her as she goes off into the unknown. Nala is brave and selfless, unlike a certain male protagonist, whose name rhymes with Pimba. Hey, I'm Pimba, Simba's cousin. I fix washing machines when I'm not tugging it to my favorite manga. But to get back on track, yes, I think this is an excellent reworking of Zimmer's material. Like They Live in You, it has a gently spiritual and affecting touch and makes great use of the ensemble. In fact, now that I think about it, and Tamor says as much in The Pride of the Lion King, the ensemble in the Broadway show is the obvious star here. I would say they back up almost every single number, but the phrase back up seems reductive and isn't in keeping with Lebo-M's intentions. In the City University television program, he talks about how a big big change he wanted to make in adapting the film for Broadway was to bring the South African vocals from the background to the foreground, placing that component squarely before the audience so the show would feel authentic, that word again. He also talks about utilizing performers of color from America, South Africa, and London, an endeavor to bring people from disparate points together so as to more fully realize an African soundscape. They are the beating heart of the show, and without their vocal talent, you'd have nothing of lasting impact. Okay, so this is another song that plays on a Hans Zimmer film composition, which can be heard on the film soundtrack around the 1 minute 55 second mark of the track Under the Stars. It's the less successful of the two attempts. Coming off like a less melodramatic variation of Close Every Door from Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, but I don't mind it overall. Simba is by far the least interesting character in his own hero story, his arc being made up of broadly sketched emotional beats like childhood era against whiny cynicism and ultimate champion, so I imagine it's hard to write for a character like Simba. A quick note on story. I've never understood, I, I referenced this early on, I've never understood why Simba 
blames himself for Mufasa's death. It's a lie Scar feeds to him as a child, but that narrative is never questioned during his journey into adulthood. He never thinks, well, it was a tragedy no one could have predicted, or wait, was my uncle really someone I could trust? It makes the character seem impossibly short-sighted. The City University television panel praises Tamor for addressing the many plot holes in the original film, but this one seems to have oddly survived. Eh, maybe the book does a better job of addressing it. I wouldn't know. It's not available to me. And those are my thoughts regarding the score for The Lion King, a fun bit of trivia regarding the original Chinese production of The Lion King. It incorporated a widely recognized pop song called Lao Shu Adami, translated as Mice Love Rice. This production also seems decidedly more meta, according to Wikipedia, with the cast breaking the fourth wall to joke around and have conversations with members of the audience. And with that fun little bit of trivia, I'm now going to hand it over to our sponsors, 5678 Orange Grove. Take it away, 5678. Do me a favor, when he comes back, take this cigarette and place it between his fucking balls. It's lit right now. If it goes out, light it again. You know what to do. You've done this before. Hello, hello. It's me, Hedvig. Yes, Hedvig from the hit show Hedvig and the Angry Inch. You will have to excuse me. I have a bit of a splitting fucking headache because I've been drinking for the last 18 and a half hours. Hello, I, I'm, I have a hangover. Okay, I have hangover. I have 16 shows that I have to do tonight alone. Oy, my head is splitting like rotten egg in fucking medieval swamplands. Hello, this is Hedvig, and I have been told, I have been told, that I am here to talk about a coffee brand named 5678 Morning Breakfast, Breakfast Grove, Orange Grove Coffee, that's, I'm getting the nod, okay. So, um, here's the thing about uh, coffee, it does help with headache, it does help with migraine, um, it helps when you are dealing with a bunch of fucking fools and dum-dums and assholes who don't know how to run a venue, uh, idiots who might be in your own band surrounding you uh, with incompetence and uh, impotency. Everyone is fucking impotent artistically and professionally, except for me, Hedvig. Um, so here's what the thing, the coffee, the, the 5678, I've had this coffee, it is good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go crazy with the press. Okay, it's good, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. But the thing is, I'm just so filled with anger and bitterness as artist who is not given uh, the proper accommodations uh, and accreditation. And so the coffee is like band-aid. And so I, I would recommend if you are in my position, if you are surrounded by fucking idiots, if you have hangover and you need coffee, if, if there is someone in your circle who deserves to have cigarette, the lit cigarette applied to the skin of their fucking testicles until it burns them and the balls fall out. Like um, marbles in pantyhose that are burned by cigarette. Um, maybe you'll need coffee. Maybe you'll have coffee. Maybe you'll feel a little bit better by, you know, a, a degree, an inch, a margin, a margin. I, but I don't know. Look, it's your fucking life. Okay, I have a fucking life to live to. I have 16, 17 fucking shows to do tonight for drunks and fools and whores and bastards and pieces of shit. I love every single one of them. I love my life. Everything around me is beautiful while at the same time being covered in mud and sperm. So I wish you a good day. Uh, coffee is good. It's fine. Uh, you can count on it, I guess. Uh, and this is Hedvig uh, saying salute your shorts. Okay, salute your shorts. Did you do it? You did? His balls fall out like marbles and pantyhose? 
Bring the balls to me, I eat them. Final thoughts on The Lion King. The Lion King is such an institution at this point, it almost seems pointless to try and point out its faults, those being an aggressively non-diverse writing team and a handful of new numbers that simply do not work from a musical or storytelling perspective. It's an institution, a landmark, as we have said, and we're never going to be rid of it. Presumably it's going to run forever until the world comes to a fucking cookie crumble end. So I'll take the few moments where it soars and hold them close, knowing they're all I have when engaging with this altogether ho-hum show. Yes, yes, the puppets, the costumes, everything visually fantastic. It's great. It's a feast for those particular senses. But I think it's time to move on, okay? We, I've, I've tipped my hat at this, this Washington monument of a show that's immobile, that's fucking intimidating, and has made so much money, money that I can't even conceptualize as being real. So I'm just going to tip my hat at this gigantic money-making machine and keep moving on. So in uh, that, that year at the Tonys, 1998, of course, The Lion King won the Tony Award for Best Musical. The other nominees that year were Ragtime, Sideshow, and and the Scarlet Pimpernel. Now, setting aside Sideshow and especially the Scarlet Pimpernel, it's kind of crazy how the Tony Awards were dispersed in 1998 when you recall how The Lion King did not walk home with either best book or best score. Those awards went to Ragtime, and I'll say it again, if you can secure best book and best score, it's my belief you should take home the best musical prize automatically. This is math we cannot simply wave away. The Lion King may be visually striking, but the original material it's bringing is more than a little uneven, whereas Ragtime is this enormous, rich, wholly grand piece of theater that is original through and through. The Disney adaptations, if I'm being brutally honest, will have a hard time with me in general during the run of this podcast, since they never have to do nearly as much work to achieve success. They bank on familiarity while offering up the bare minimum of new, and while I would never discount the hours of artistic and physical labor that goes into their realization, the fact of the matter is that other shows like Ragtime truly have to shine if they're going to cultivate a following. Therefore, I go back in time and retroactively award the best musical prize to Ragtime. Congrats, Ragtime! I'm going to place The Lion King at number 12 on my ranking list for now, though this could easily change with additional perspective. As of now, it will rest between Juan Darien at number 11 and Grind at number 13. I realize this ranking process is only going to become more complicated as time goes on, but that's the challenge, isn't it? It's fun. I'm only pacing, placing, I should say, The Lion King under Juan Darien because the latter is a totally original piece. They're both weird cultural stews chiefly devised by white people with an anthropological interest in shopping among the eyes of a foreign culture, so it seems right that they be paired together on our list in some form. I don't want my snark to read as that of someone who's anti-melting pot, by the way. It's not like I think cultures should never mix. That would be psychotic. And people of different backgrounds should never collaborate when creating their art. But artists of color have been afforded very few opportunities to be the captain of the ship. You know, the one right out front. When an artist like Lebo M is bringing together artists of color from different 
national backgrounds to teach them about the South African style of singing and see how everyone can come together to bring that and other styles and languages to life on stage. That's amazing and is a much more genuine celebration of that melting pot metaphor. Lebo even drops the term melting pot in the final moments of the City Television University program. However, while Lebo Lim gets a ton of credit for shepherding the Lion King into legendary status, and I'm certain he was and is still being paid handsomely for his work, I don't get the sense he was granted the blank check status other white people got as a result of that work. I certainly wasn't aware of his being a key figure in the film and show's development until this week. And I have a feeling I'm not alone. Maybe that's entirely on me, but the point is Lebo M should be more of a household name. This episode is dedicated to Lebo M. Bonus observation for my boyfriend Chris. Lebo also worked on the score for the film Congo, Michael Crichton's Congo, a film about satellite communication in the 21st century. Also, Gorillas, show-related ephemera. Now, I did watch footage of a Lion King Disneyland parade that is introduced by Jonathan Taylor Thomas. This looks exactly what everyone at Disney feared a Broadway version of The Lion King would look like on stage. Everyone in this parade is wearing ghastly, very embarrassing costumes that do evoke sports mascots and early furry culture. Very unsettling to see all of these different performers up close. The animatronic Mufasa Simba, no idea who this is, is creepy as hell, sporting eyes that roll around in his skull like the poor creature is in the early stages of rabidity. Uh, a little off the beaten path, but I did watch the opening of the 55th annual Tony Awards, which was hosted by Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane. The gag is that with the success of the producers, Matthew's gotten a little full of himself to the point where he says, why I could have people killed. Maybe not the best joke in light of, you know, the little thing uh, called vehicular manslaughter. Cough, cough. Moving on. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show. Doc workers have interesting stories too, you know. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I have stepped off of the musical carousel and we are going all the way back to the 1951 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, Guys and Dolls, a musical fable of Broadway. Now, I should say that I am going to be taking a week off. So this episode, the Guys and Dolls episode, will be coming to you on June 26th. I have family coming in for Father's Day, uh, the Father's Day holiday weekend, and so I'm going to be spending time with them. And I, I, I'm sorry, I... I I do hate to be uh, without you for for a week, but let's just take the time to uh, just breathe, relax a little bit, maybe go back into the archives, listen to some old episodes, or if you have a little spare change in your pocket, why don't you start listening to some of the bonus material available through patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Aha, that's right. If you donate $1 a month to that Patreon, you'll get a verbal shout out each and every week, just like Jenna. Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you donate $3 a month, you'll get a musical shout-out in the style of a uh, character or composer of your choice. If you donate $5 a month, that is when you get the bonus material. Uh, you'll get to determine which show I discuss on the podcast, but you'll also get all of the episodes of All I Ask of You, the Phantom of the Opera advice show, and you'll also get access to my uh, Tony's coverage, which will be dropping on the 10th. At this point, it'll already be out. It'll already be out. 
out. So I hope you do enjoy that $5 and up Patreon donors. And if you donate $10 a month, you will have access to the Snub Club, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Donations go toward cast recordings, movie rentals, offsetting pod bean costs. If we ever get to a point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, the movie musical man, in which I discuss thematically related movie musical trios, trilogies, still working on that soundbite elevator pitch. Uh, If you're listening through iTunes, uh, congratulations. Uh, Apparently by the fall, you won't be doing that. You will probably be listening to it through Apple Podcasts. So I should start just saying Apple Podcasts, right? Yeah, we should transition now. Uh, If you do write a review for the show in the Apple Podcast store, I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, I will, if you let me know, I will send you my cover of Light My Candle from Rent. If you're streaming the show, that's either through Stitcher or musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Uh, reach out to me via Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at musicalmanpod or email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Those are those communication details I promised you at the top of the show. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our beautiful music. And that's that doorbell, baby. Oh, you know what that means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically June 26th on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off of and good night. <laughs>